If you have a Bible, I invite you to take it and turn to Joshua chapter 24. Joshua 24. We will be in lots of different places this morning trying to bring some thoughts together. Um, I have thought of Psalm 130. I believe that's it. Let me check. Many times in preparation for some of these sermons. Um, Psalm 131. It says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Uh, I've thought, Andy, you're occupying yourself with things that are too great for you. Beyond my understanding, trying to understand how we live as Christians within the government in which we live. Um, But I know that in the first message, my heart is just to be a pastor Uh, to help us think about Scripture, maybe to plant some scriptural seeds and biblical seeds of thought that will help us think about how we live in this world. Um, And if you're ready to get back into a book of the Bible and just sort of walk through it, me too. Uh, When we're studying books like Genesis, I love, when we get to the end, I don't want it to end. Uh, When I do topical sermons, I'm ready when it's over um, because it's just harder. But I think it's good, and I feel like this is good for us to pause and to, to think about And so um, we'll do it this morning. This is our question for today. We've been trying to ask some different questions. Our question is, whose side are we on? Uh, Whose side are we on? And before I get into that, I have to begin with an obligatory reference to the World Series. Um, For those of you who don't care about baseball, I am sorry on multiple levels for you. Um, As a kid, I grew up in northeast Ohio, so I grew up cheering for the Cleveland Indians. Uh, I have a vague memory as a child of going to Cleveland Municipal Stadium and watching the Indians play, but I have many clear memories of going to Jacobs Field and rooting for the Tribe, especially in the mid-90s when they were a great team. Um, And then when I went away to college, I went to Chicago, and Moody is more on the north side than the south side, um, much to Jessica's chagrin, though she's not... Uh, in here right now but um, I was there and I had a chance to go to Wrigley Field and got to see the the Cubs play and slowly began to follow them and then uh, Andrea grew up rooting for the Cubs and so when we were married it was fun to cheer on the Cubs together we went to some games at Wrigley Field together um, and we would when we lived in that area we'd listen to the radio uh, and hear Pat and Ron call the games on WGN and the Cubs are a National League team, and the, the Tribe is an American League team. And so I knew that I would never really have to root against my two favorite teams unless, for some reason, they both got into the World Series, which is impossible because the Cubs and the Indians have the two longest World Series droughts currently. Well, not anymore, I guess, um, because, of course, they both made it this year. And so I received a lot of texts. Jordan was one of the people and said, who are you rooting for? Um, and to be honest, I... I, I don't know if I ever really made a, a decision. I couldn't root against my roots, but I also couldn't cheer against my wife and my children who were pulling for the Cubs. So uh, it looked like a win-lose situation for me, but, man, you know, game seven, extra innings, it was just win-win for everyone. Now, why do I share that? <laughs> What's the point of talking about the World Series, and what does this have to do with the church and the state? and with Christians in the political system. Here's the connection. I think it seems that often politics and the political system is boiled down to the question of who are you rooting for? 
who are you voting for? Um, voting becomes focused on, on who you're rooting for and maybe even more so who you're rooting against. Uh, and the election process can oftentimes it gets hijacked by people who are running for office and it becomes some sort of strange blood sport where rules don't matter. And as long as when the dust settles, your fighter is the one standing there that you win. And in the midst of all this carnage of the current election season, probably any election season, we're faced with the question of whether or not our participation in the political process is changed by the fact that we are Christians. If I am a Christian, whose side am I on? Who, who am I rooting for? Who am I stumping for? Who am I cheering for? And who am I cheering against? And does my allegiance to Jesus inform my allegiance to a candidate, to a party, or even to a nation itself? So I want us to think about two things today as we try to bring all of this stuff together. And I want to answer these questions and we're going to do it without mentioning any candidate for any office, okay? I will tell you whose side we are on without ever mentioning those names. Uh, my prayer is that these things that we're talking about today, again, are built on this foundation of Romans 13, of 1 Peter 2, of 1 Timothy 2, and all the other scriptures that we're going to look at today. And the two things that I want us to think on are the fact that when we think about this question, whose side on, are we on, our first reaction should be to say, I'm on the Lord's side. I'm on God's side. <laughs> and then I want us to think on this question, if we're on the Lord's side, then whose side is the Lord on? And we're going to find that he's on the side of the outcast. So let's begin here. If we are Christians, we're thinking about whose side we're on. Um, we can say this for sure. And this is kind of one of the two main points. This is one. Our greatest allegiance is to Jesus and his kingdom. Our greatest allegiance is to Jesus and his kingdom. Whoever we are, wherever we live, whomever we vote for or do not vote for, and however we find ourselves living in a society in which God has placed us, our greatest allegiance is to King Jesus and to his kingdom. Um, and that is a commitment to it, – it's, it's that commitment to the kingship of God that has always marked out God's people in whatever culture they have lived in. So we, we look at Joshua 24. And as the children of Israel, as, as God's people stand in the promised land, having conquered countless enemies, Joshua reminds them that it was God who released them from bondage in Egypt. It was God who fought for them and who had prepared the land for them. And then he says to them in Joshua 24, verses 14 and 15, he says, Now therefore, this is Joshua speaking, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers, the, the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people respond and say, us too. And yet history proves differently. We find all a long time later in 1 Kings 18 that the kingdom stands divided and God's people are worshiping false gods. They're trusting human kings. And the prophet Elijah issues a similar challenge in 1 Kings 18. He stands, remember, before the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And Elijah boldly says in 1 Kings 18.21, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, 
follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And in this instance, it says that the people did not answer him a word. Now, is an earthly government or a presidential candidate a false god? Probably not in the same sense that Baal was to the people in Elijah's day or that false idols were in Joshua's day. But I think the parallel can be found in the fact that that a false god, a false idol, is anything that we're going to trust other than God. An idol is, is anything or anyone that we would fear more than God or that we would serve more than God or that we would worship more than God. So we can think about Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego again. And they, they're told to worship before this statue of Nebuchadnezzar or be thrown in the fiery furnace. In that moment, the temptation isn't just to false worship, but it's to fearing an earthly king rather than the true king. It's a question of who are they going to serve? Look at the way they answer in Daniel three sixteen through 18. They say, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. In other words, we got this all figured out. Okay, we're not, it's not a question for us. They say, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the, from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They serve God alone. The same thing happens a few chapters later in chapter 6 when Darius commands that no one should be prayed to except for him for 30 days and those who disobey are going to be thrown to the lions and Daniel's opponents see that he continues to pray to God each day and so they say this to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed but makes his petition three times a day. And that's right. Daniel pays no attention to that decree because his final allegiance is to a different king. It's to an unseen kingdom. He fears God more than man. He serves God and not kings. Pharaoh tells the Hebrew midwives in Exodus 1 that they're supposed to kill any Hebrew boy that is born. And Exodus 1.17 says, but the midwives feared God. and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Now, We've been clear in previous weeks that sub, about submitting to governing authorities. And now it feels like I'm making some sort of case for rebelling against um, public authorities. But my hope is to remind us yet again that, that our hope, our trust, our allegiance, our worship belongs to God alone. Our hope and our trust and our allegiance and our worship is not for an earthly king or an earthly government. Isaiah 31.1 puts it sharply, Woe to those who go down to Egypt or to any nation for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult, consult the Lord. We don't want to be those who go down to Egypt but don't look for help from the Lord. We don't want to be those who trust in political power more than we trust in God's power to do whatever he wants, whoever's in power. God is the king. We trust, we fear, we serve him alone. So should we vote? Yeah, for sure. But that vote is, is not a statement. It is not and it is a statement of where our trust is. We can cast a vote without saying, this is where my final hope lies. This is what, you know, and I cast it in fear of what could happen. It shouldn't be a statement about where our first allegiance is. 
The solution isn't, though, to write in Jesus. That's not the point, right? That doesn't accomplish anything. We don't write in Jesus. We just recognize that the solution is to trust Jesus. We trust him no matter who we're voting for. He's the one that we're putting our confidence and our hope, and he's the one that we're serving and that we're fearing. So we cast our vote. And then we say with Micah 4, 5, for all the people walk each in the name of its own God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord, our God, forever and ever. That's, that's, that's the name that we stand with. We don't, we don't walk in any other name other than the Lord, our God, not Republican or Democrat or Independent or Libertarian or Green Party or Constitutional Party or there was another one on the ballot too. I don't remember, even remember what it was, but we don't walk in any of those names. We don't even walk under the name American. Whose side are we on? We're on the Lord's side. We fear, we trust, we serve, we worship him alone. Now, we've kind of built that case in some ways in recent weeks. So the next question is, if we're on the Lord's side, whose side is the Lord on? Who is Jesus rooting for? Because if I'm with Jesus, then I'm rooting for whoever he is rooting for. I think understanding this question helps us to think about how we not only engage with the government and with the political process, but how we just engage with the world at large. I think it helps us to see what and who we should be concerned about and how we should consider the issues of our day, as well as what we should be about as, as God's people. So we saw in 1 Peter 2 that we're called to do good deeds such that others see us and glorify God in heaven. And I think by, by asking this question, whose side is Jesus on? It helps us to, and gives us insight into what those good deeds will look like as we serve King Jesus. Who's in his kingdom? Who are we serving? So here's our thought, for our second thought. If, if our greatest allegiance is to King Jesus and his kingdom, then we are on the side of the weak and needy. As we enter into this election day and, and as we're in the midst of this political process and in this society, I want us to remember we are on the side of the weak and the needy. Whose side are we on? We're on Jesus' side. We serve him alone, and we are on the side of the weak and the needy. Some of you may remember our time in the Gospel of Luke and how from the very beginning this felt very much to be the theme that was running through that Gospel. It's clear that Jesus is coming in a unique way for the outcast and for the marginalized. So Mary, when she, in her Magnificat, in, in Luke 1, 51 to 53, she responds to this news that she's carrying the Messiah by saying this, speaking of God, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away. Later, when Jesus himself begins his ministry, he goes back to his hometown of Nazareth. Mark read this passage for us. And while he's in the synagogue, he stands up and he reads from the scriptures. And Luke writes, I'll read part of that again in, in Luke 4. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the, unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus inaugurates his ministry. He begins his ministry by saying that he has come to bring good news specifically for the poor and the captive and the blind 
and the oppressed. Later in his ministry, John the Baptist sends word from prison to Jesus. And the people who come say to Jesus in Matthew 11:2 that John wants to know, are you the one who is to come or should we look for someone else? John wants to know, he's sitting in prison. Is, are you really the Messiah? And it says, Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised and the poor have good news preached to them. <laughs> And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus answers in that way and he expects that John will know he is really the Messiah by the fact that his ministry is focused on the lame and the blind and the outcasts and those that are defeated and the poor. Jesus seems to, to think that, that John will understand that this focus of his ministry to those that are marginalized in society will make his identity as the Messiah obvious because he is reflecting God's heart throughout the whole New Te Old Testament. So care for the poor and the strangers and the needy, this was at the heart of, of God. It was at the heart of the law itself. We know the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. But two chapters later, in Exodus 22, let me read Exodus 22, 21 through 27. This is in the law. You shall not wrong a sojourner. This would be an immigrant, someone from a different country. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword. And your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of the people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him. And you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering. And it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear. For I am compassionate. God tells his people... That he, in a sense, he says, I will not stand for you ignoring or mistreating the needy in society. And he says that caring for them is a direct reflection of his character because he is compassionate. Not only that, but it's, it is, it's, a, it's a recognition that, that we too were strangers, that we too were poor. And we still would be, except for the grace of God. It's not just the law, but the Old Testament prophets call out God's people for failing to care, care for people in need. Isaiah 1, God rejects the worship and the fasting of his people. He refuses to hear their prayers, and he tells them in Isaiah 1, 16 and 17, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. How? Remove the evil deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. In a similar way, Amos 5, 21 through 25, God speaks out against the way his people were exploiting the poor by using false balances when they were in the market. He says, I hate and despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. 
righteousness. Righteousness is a word that we sometimes just associate with moral purity. But in Ezekiel 18, 6-9, the righteous person is described not just in terms of moral purity, but how he exercises grace and mercy to the people that are in need. Ezekiel says that, he's, that, he, that the righteous person just it doesn't worship idols. He's not sexually impure. But the verse also says that if he does not oppress anyone, but restores to the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry, and covers the naked with a garment, does not lend at interest or take any profit, withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man and man, walks in my statutes, and keeps my rules by acting faithfully. And if he does all that, then he's righteous. It's not just moral purity in the things that we don't do, but it's care for those that are in need that God says is righteousness. Following then the Old Testament, following the teachings of Jesus, the New Testament church picks up on this. And they have this same concern for those that are on the fringes of society. You read about the early church in Acts and they bless the poor and the sick continually. They take up a collection for a famine that is coming in the land. There's a controversy. You remember a deep theological issue around the Gentiles becoming a part of um, God's people. And there's all these questions around that. And as they deal with that in Galatians 2, the church says, yes, this is our stance on this. But in the midst of all this, Paul, remember the poor. And Paul says, they told me that. He says in Galatians 2, and that was the very thing I was eager to do. Let's be concerned about the theological issue. But don't forget about the poor, Paul, because that's important. How does James describe pure and undefiled religion? It's caring for widows and orphans and keeping yourself unstained by the world. It's both. The care of widows was important to Paul, enough that Paul spells out, you can read in his letters, he spells out very clearly, if you have a widow, here's how we need to best care for her. There's a a huge portion of Paul's letters that speaks about how to care for widows. It's not just the Old Testament, it's not the teaching of Jesus, it's, it's not even just the New Testament, but church history tells us that concern for those in need has always been a hallmark of the true church. The Emperor Julian He's called Julian the Apostate because he tried to bring things um, back um, after um, Constantine had put Christianized so many things. But the, the, this emperor, Julian, he begrudgingly acknowledged that the Christians of his day provided not only for their own poor, but they provided for the poor of the entire empire. It's said of the early church that in part it grew so rapidly because no one cared for the infants and the children and sometimes would leave them abandoned. But the, the Christians were the ones who came and who cared for the children. And the church grew because they cared for kids, and those kids grew up as Christians. Today, sometimes the the names are meaningless, but if you look at hospitals and you look at orphanages and you look at schools and you look at universities, they find their roots in Christianity because followers of Christ have always had a deep concern for people that are in need. They've had a deep concern for helping the sick, for providing for the needy, for educating people. We've been inconsistent, but the church has stood against slavery. The church has stood against racism. It's stood against abortion. We've stood up throughout history from the Old Testament, God's people, to the New Testament, God's people, to now God's people have always stood up for the people whose voices cannot be heard because they cannot speak for themselves. And so it continues to this day that the church, more than anyone else, is on the side of the marginalized and the voiceless. We get confused at times and we lose focus and we sometimes buy into materialism and greed 
and calls us to focus on just the middle class. That's what's most important. But still, we are often the first ones to help when need arises because that is who we are as God's people. Even those who stand against us acknowledge it. I don't know if you've ever read The Onion. It's a satirical newspaper. I don't recommend it highly. But it functions in this article some ways like a modern Emperor Julian who begrudgingly acknowledged that the Christians, yeah, they actually help a lot of people out. This is the title of the article. Local church full of brainwashed idiots feeds towns poor every week. Listen to what it says. This is satire, okay? Uh, Some of you will hate this and some of you will love it. Sources confirmed today that the brainwashed morons at First Baptist Assembly of Christ, all of whom blindly accept whatever simplistic fairy tales are fed to them, volunteer each Wednesday night to provide meals to impoverished members of the community. Quote, unfortunately, there are a lot of people in town who have fallen on hard times and are unable to afford to put food on the table. So we try to help out as best we can, said 48-year-old Carrie Bellamy, one of the mindless sheep who adheres to a backward ideology and is incapable of thinking for herself while spooning out handmade homemade shepherd's pie to a line of poor and homeless individuals. Quote, it feels great to share our blessings with the less fortunate. Plus, it's fun to work alongside all the members of our church who come out each week. As of press time, the brainless, unthinking lemmings had donated their winter clothing they no longer wore to several needy families and still hadn't opened their eyes to reality. Now, whether you like satire or not, what I love about this is that it stands as an example that the world can reject everything that we believe, but they should never be able to accuse us of, of not having a concern for those that are in need. Fine, call us brainwashed idiots, but the church should never be able to say that we don't care for those in need. They can't say that we are uncompassionate that we don't care for the needy and the marginalized. The sad thing is that so often the church has been more concerned about political power than it has been concerned about compassion. And that's not what we're supposed to look like. We're supposed to be those who do hold our beliefs, whether people mock us for them or not. We hold those things. But those beliefs are so in tune that we serve King Jesus, and King Jesus is on the side of the poor and the needy, and the marginalized, and the widow, and the orphan. And so people can disagree with this, but they look at the way that we live in this world, and the good that we are able to do, and they say, well, we can't argue with that. And isn't that what First Peter finally gets to? That suddenly they see, oh, actually, those things are connected. The reason that they serve is because of what they believe. That's our great hope. So we can debate about how to care for people in need. Uh, we can think about economic policies, and we can talk about health care policies. We can talk about immigration policies. We can talk about how we should ba- vote based on those different policies. But we can also think about how the church itself should, in some ways, make some of those policies and programs unnecessary. That if we are doing our job as those who care for the marginalized, there is no need for some of these things. We can debate the how of it all, but there seems to be no room for debating whose side we are supposed to be on. If we stand with Jesus, then we stand in a unique way with the poor and the oppressed, with the exploited, with the orphan, with the widow, with prisoners, with people who have just been released from prison and are just trying to make it in this world. We stand with people who are disabled, who are mentally handicapped, those who have mental health issues. We stand 
with, with those who are outcasts, with those who are hungry, with those who are homeless and rejected. The church stands against things like human trafficking. We stand against pornography and prostitution and the exploitation and objectifying of women. We stand against that. We reject racism. We reject xenophobia and nativism. We reject homophobia, not because we embrace the homosexual lifestyle as something that is right and holy, but because we don't fear anything but God alone. And he calls us to engage the world with grace and truth. We don't engage the the world with hate and silence, nor do we engage the world with compromise and weakness. We come with grace and truth and without any fear. We push against the killing of all vulnerable people, whether infants through abortion or the elderly through euthanasia. We stand for those who have no voice. And we can vote those values. We can vote in such a way that we're not just concerned about us. So much of voting becomes, what's best for me? How does this policy help me? I'm the middle class, and if we can raise up the middle class, then everything will be better. Maybe. I don't know. But do I vote in such a way that I'm also not just concerned about me, but I'm concerned about the poor and the marginalized and those who do not have a voice so often in our political system? But we don't just vote those values, okay? That can't be where it stops. We have to live them. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. And we do it so that people might see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. When we, as as the people of God, proclaim that our greatest allegiance is, is to Jesus and his kingdom, and that, and that out of that, we reach out our hand to help those who in a unique way are despised and rejected by society to the, the marginalized and the needy. We model the gospel in a way that words alone never can. We show Christianity is not a religion for middle class good people who have fought to get all that they have. That's not who the gospel is for. We show that instead the gospel is a message of hope for everyone, especially for the poor. Because we are all blind, and we are all lost, and we are all dead apart from the grace of God. And the grace of God doesn't come to us because we're good and because we haven't figured out. It comes to us because it's grace. The good news is, is not that we are not helpless. It's the fact that while we were helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. It's not a message for those who are full of life. It's a message for those who recognize that they are dead in their sins and that Jesus has died to pay the penalty for sin, that he has risen from the dead to bring new life, and that we are saved from the penalty of sin by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so our greatest allegiance, finally, is, is to King Jesus and his kingdom, and we stand with him. And because we stand with him, we stand with the weak and with the needy. You know, that not only reflects the gospel, it reflects the coming kingdom. I was thinking about Christ's kingdom, that Christ's kingdom is described as much by what is not there as what is there. 
When you think about the descriptions in, in the Bible about what is the kingdom of God, well, it's a place where there's no more death and there's, there's no more hunger and there will be no more poor and there will be no more needy people. There will be no famine. There will be no drought. There will be no violence. There will be no orphans. There will be no widows. There will be no oppression. There won't even be night in heaven. None of these things will be there because Jesus will be there. And he will reign in all of his glory and all of his power as the one that the Psalms describe, the the one who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Jesus, Jesus scatters all night. Why? Because he is the light of the world. And because he is the Lamb of God who takes away, removes all the sin of the world and all of the pain and the heartache associated with sin. How good that we get to come to the table today. We get to come and remember that we are children of God. Why? Because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Only because the Father sent Jesus to live and to die and to rise again. It's only because of that that needy, dead sinners like us can be saved from sin and death. The truth that this table represents is the foundation of all that we are and all that we do. It does make a difference that you are a Christian in how you engage with this world. And it makes a difference. This is the table. This is what this table represents is what makes the difference. It reminds us of who we are. We are sinners and we are dead and we are lost apart from Christ. It reminds us of what Christ has done, that his body was broken for us, that his blood was shed for us. And it reminds us that we are now his people. We are his children. And so we are unique in this world, serving those in need and glorifying him.